Thanks for listening to this teaching from City of Life Church. Check out www.col.tv for more great teachings, service times, and information on upcoming events. Now, let's join the service already in progress. Man, so good to be with you on a Sunday afternoon. Is it afternoon yet? Yeah, 1215. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 33. I will get there in just a minute. And uh, thank you so much, Pastor Jeff and Amy, for having us. And your parents uh, mean so much to us. I was telling the first service this, that uh, I guess a couple months ago, Bill Cornelius was here. And your mom was telling me he gets up and he starts mentioning all the things that he's not. He's not an artist. He's not a songwriter. He's not a movie producer. (laughs) Like he's another another thing. He's a preacher. So I'm like, I was actually going to say all those same things. And it's weird. It's funny. But when uh, you're around someone as talented as, as your pastor is, you feel the need to up front adjust everybody's expectations. You know, lower your expectations because I'm like, Bill, I'm none of those things. Um, but I uh, love your pastor. I love who he is, what he stands for, how he thinks, how he approaches church, how he approaches leading you, his family. Such a privilege to be with him and to be spending time with you uh, always means so much. So thank you for the opportunity to invest uh, maybe some things from the scripture into your lives. I believe it's going to speak to you and matter to you. Too. Some background on who I am real quick. Uh, I did not grow up in church. I've been serving God for 31 years now. I got saved when I was 16 years old in a small little Pentecostal church. And uh, my daughter's actually here with me. Um, Lauren, I know Pastor Jeff mentioned that. She's a senior in college. She is uh, excited to go to something Disney this afternoon. As soon as we're done here, she's excited about that. So she's not here for this. You all know that, right? She's here for that. Um, but uh, she uh, leads our youth department, the creative department in our, our youth ministry. She's just a great young leader. And so I'm so excited that she's here with me. Uh, so proud of her. But anyway... The, um, I didn't grow up in church. I, my mom was, uh, died of a drug overdose. My dad's an atheist to this day. And um, so that was kind of my background. I'd never heard of John 3.16, never heard David and Goliath. I'd never heard uh, even the word saved. I had no understanding of church environments like what this is. And I was invited to this church. The preacher was preaching the cross and the crucifixion and very gruesome, you know, how Jesus bled and died and it was your sin that did it to him. And at the end of his sermon, he said, if you want to go to heaven and not hell, raise your hand. And so I lifted my hand up. Sounded like a good deal to me. Well, my friend that was there with me said, put your hand down. You're embarrassing me. I said, you can go to hell if you want to. I'm going to heaven. And I walked down to an altar. Do I need to do something different? Coach me, sound guy. Everybody's a little different. You're good. You're good. All right. Um, cause I'm a soft talker. So you're trying to figure that out where I'm putting it, aren't you? I, I know, I know. I, they give me these mics and then I make it the sound guy's worst day of his life. So, so they, um, so, you know, I just basically was, went to an altar 
Um, I gave my life to Christ when I was 16 years old. I still remember a tear streaming down my face. I still remember it feeling like a million pounds lifted off my shoulders. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why it was going on. I still remember the two young ladies that prayed what we know as the sinner's prayer over my life. I knew immediately in that moment, nothing would ever be the same. I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew something was different. They handed me a little New Testament Bible. At the time, I didn't even know what it was. They just said, you're a Christian now. You have to read this. Well, I'd never read a book in my whole life. Never read a book in my whole life. It wasn't a study where I came from. You'd get beat up if, you, if people found out you read books. So, so I was just trying to, didn't go to school my eighth grade year. That's just the environment that I was raised in. And, uh, but they gave me this Bible and said, you need to read it. I immediately that night went home and started reading the Bible. Well, I couldn't stop reading the Bible. I didn't know I was reading the Bible, but I couldn't put it down. And a couple weeks later, I ran into who became my youth pastor. And he said, what have you been doing? I'm like, I work on Sundays. I had not made it to church, but I've been reading that book you gave me. He's like, well, how do you like it? I'm like, I really like it. I just feel like it's deja vu when I read it. Like I'm reading the same thing over and over again. He's like, well, what have you been reading? I'm like, well, I read about the guy, Matthew. I read about the guy, Mark. I read about the guy, Luke. I read about the guy, John. He's like, well, you probably are reading the same thing over and over again. It's different authors writing about similar events. So, so I begin to understand that. But my point is, is from a young age, um, I fell in love with the scriptures. I fell in love with the word. I do believe that God's word works. I do believe that living uh, according to what God says and the way he lays it out, though it's foreign and counter to the current culture uh, or any existing culture that's ever been, the kingdom is always the opposite. For 31 years, I've served God for 31 years. I had no idea it would be what it is today. But from the time I was 16 till today, my favorite thing is still just opening up the Bible and digging into it and seeing what God has to say. So can we pray real quick and just ask God to speak to us before we get to it? Father, we love you so much. We do thank you for Jesus once again. We thank you for the great price that was paid for us. And we do acknowledge that without you, we're nothing. We're nobody. We also know that in this service today, there's a chance that we'll just have another church service. There is a chance. The, the probability exists that we'll all walk out of here very, very much the same way we came in. But there's also that small chance that we would capture this moment, that we would settle into what this moment is, and that we would, we would with open hearts, ask you to speak to us. We would acknowledge our great need for you. We would acknowledge no matter what we're going through, that we are here today on a Sunday, Resurrection Day, and we can trust that you can raise us up out of whatever we're going through in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 18, and Zebulon, he said, or to Zebulon, he said, rejoice in your going out and you, Issachar, in your tents. They will summon people to the mountain and there offer the sacrifices of the righteous and they will feast on the abundance of seas and on the treasures hidden in the sand. If you've got your Bibles, you can underline that phrase, treasures hidden in the sand. I want to talk to you about that idea. The quick background of this text is Jacob, you might remember, has this encounter with God. He wrestles with God all night. As a result of wrestling with God, he is struck in his hip, so he comes out of that encounter, walking different. His name is changed. His identity is different. And really nothing about his life after that encounter was the same, which is what a real encounter with God does with us. It changes everything in our life. We don't walk the same. 
Our identity's not the same. Our relationships change. The way we see ourselves, the way we see people, the way we see life, the way we see even God, everything changes the moment you have an encounter with God. And so Jacob has this encounter with God and attached to that encounter was a prophecy that he would be the father of a nation. He goes out, he ends up having 12 sons. You've probably read about those 12 sons, Levi and Judah and Joseph and Benjamin and Dan. And the 12 sons eventually become the 12 tribes. So the name of each of those sons, uh, Reuben, for example, became a tribe in Israel. Some of you know this stuff, but for those of you that are a little bit more like me, you like to see the basics of it. So all the sons of Jacob end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in biblical times, when, you, uh, when the father was older in age, he would bring his children in and he would begin to talk to them about the family, about the future, about the inheritance. In Bible days, the firstborn usually got a greater portion of the inheritance, usually at least double, because his responsibility would be to act as the patriarch of the family. He would be responsible for caring for the family. So he would get usually a larger inheritance, and then it would begin to go down from there. So depending on how many children are in the family or how many sons are in the family specifically, the further you got down the line, the less of the inheritance would be available to be given away. And so in this particular story, um, if you go back to Genesis chapter 49, you can read of Jacob actually grabbing each of his sons from the oldest to the youngest, and he, each of them, he blessed them and he prophesied over them and he talked to them about what their inheritance would be. And the Bible says he was so old in age and so weakened that he had to lean on his staff to stand up to prophesy and to bless each of his sons. Now, after this goes on, he gets finally to the very last son, the youngest son. This would be Leah's uh, child, the youngest of all of the sons. His name was Zebulon. And when it got to Zebulon, he prophesied over him, Jacob did, that he would dwell by the sea on the edge of the land of promise. That was the prophecy. Zebulon walks out of that moment like all the other sons did. And now you have to realize hundreds of years have gone by. Israel, the 12 sons, have become the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes have gone through uh, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They've come out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness. They're on the other side of the 40 years in the wilderness. They're about to go into the promised land. And now Moses is going to take the prophecy that Jacob gave his 12 sons, and Moses is going to take that prophecy, and he's going to remind the 12 tribes of what their inheritance was given, what what exactly it was that was given by Jacob. Moses is now going to break it up. So now it's not prophecy. Now it's they're actually moving into Canaan. This is real ground, real boundaries, uh, real rivers and mountains and grass and livestock and homes. It's real. So Moses is now breaking it up. He's reaching back to what Jacob said to each of them, but he's telling them, you're going to dwell over on the south and you're going to dwell in the mountainous region and you're going to dwell over in this area where there's fertile ground or agricultural stuff is strong. And so now Moses is actually breaking up the inheritance to each one of the sons and to Zebulon the Bible says that he gives him this inheritance that's the least of all of the other inheritance, where the other tribes would receive mountains and fertile fields and pastures. 
which would be critical in agricultural society just to survive. You would need to grow stuff to feed your livestock and your animals. And so Zebulon inherits this area that was on the edge of the land of promise that was primarily nothing but sand. All you could see as far as the eye could see is sand. Well, we would know that you can't grow anything in sand. You can't feed your animals if you can't grow anything. But that is as far as you could see. That's all that they had been given. So this became the most despised of all the tribes because of what they owned, because of what they were given, because of their stuff, their things. They were considered the least, not just the youngest, but they were considered the least valuable because their inheritance was the least value. Well, so they weren't invited to Jerusalem. They were so far out on the out, outskirts. They weren't brought in to make governmental decisions or decisions on behalf of the nation. They were almost always uh, mocked and ostracized as the uncultured, the uneducated, the hicks of society. They were constantly being laughed at. Yet this is the inheritance that God had given them. God gave them sand. Well, we would know sand is, is somewhat worthless because you can't, not only can you not grow anything in sand and not only can, can your animals not live off of what you can not grow in sand, um, but, but we could go one step further with it and we could say of all the beaches in Florida uh, that, that we could go to, I don't see any police officers checking people's pockets to see, are you leaving the beach with sand in your pockets? I've, I've not seen anybody brushing off the sand from the shoes because the sand is so valuable, right? Most of us, we can't stand the sand in our car. It's annoying. It's irritating. It gets in our clothes. It gets in our toes. It gets in our face. It gets, in, it gets everywhere. Sand, by the sheer amount of it, is invaluable, right? That's economic 101. The more there is of something, the less valuable it is. And the Bible actually says that sand is innumerable, that you can't count it. And so it's of no value because of the sheer amount of it. Jesus even said that if you're going to build your life, make sure whatever you do, you don't build it on the sand, right? Because eventually something's going to happen. And if you build your life on something that's of no value or has no strength or no substance to it, you won't make it in the end. And so of all the places I've been, of all the deserts I've seen, the sand dunes and the beaches I've seen, I've never seen anyone try to protect those places because sand is so valuable. So what do we know about this idea that God comes to Moses? Moses gives this tribe their inheritance. The God given inheritance was sand. Now, to show you how insulting this was. Let's just imagine in this church service that some of you that are in a very difficult place right now, we're going to pray for you. Uh, maybe you're going through a marriage crisis. Maybe you're going through uh, the loss of a job. Maybe, maybe you're, you're having mental health issues and you just constantly struggling with a sense of it is even worth it to live another day. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and in, in your life, you're just going through a, a, a disease that seems to be incurable. And every time you get on the other side of it, it pulls you back and you keep going through it and you look at all that stuff. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a prayer line and we're going to pray for you and we're going to prophesy over you. And we're going to speak the blessing of God over you. And not only that, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that you leave here knowing what the promise of God is for your life, for your personal situation. When you leave, 
leave here, we're going to make sure you know that. So you come forward, your hands raised. They're leading this great worship like they did. Uh, uh, Pastor Janice is leading worship, talking about the blood. And we're all here and we want to receive from God. And then I reach in my pocket and I grab some sand and I say, put your hand out, put your hand out. I want you to receive. And then I put some sand in your hand. What's this? That's it. What is that? That's that's your future. Is it metaphorical for something? Is it symbolic of something? I need to know what. No, that's it. Well, you would probably leave the service. Number one, thinking I don't like that pastor very much. I hope Pastor Jeff never brings them back. Right. Because we know that there's no value in that. And so when Moses says to Zebulon, this is your inheritance. This is your future. I'm imagining that they were just as insulted as some of us would be. And if we look at our life, many of us are insulted by the inheritance we've been given. Maybe you were born in a disadvantaged environment. Maybe you were raised in an atmosphere that is despised. Maybe you're looking at your life now and you're like, this is not what I asked for. This is not what I dream for. This is not what I hope for. But yet this is what it seems like God has given you. And at some point we realize in life that God will hand us an inheritance of sand. Now, I think a lot of times we want to believe that we come to church and, and we want to hear a sermon about diamonds and rubies and priceless stones, right? We, we want God to give us that kind of stuff. We want God to give us the great things of life, the blessings of life. But yet some of us are in a church service and we love God and we worship God, but yet you're looking at your life and it looks more like that worthless material we're preaching about right now. It looks more like sand. You didn't get what you dreamed for. You didn't get what you had faith for and you believe for. You look out and other people have those things that you sacrificed and sowed and believed was in your future, but that's not what life gave you. Life gave you sand no value, worthless. You don't see anything positive or good or worthwhile that can come out of that. You dreamed of blessings, but you woke up with sand. You dreamed of love, but you woke up with a broken heart. You dreamed of a long life, but instead you're struggling with a deadly disease. You dreamed of happiness, but instead you're plagued with depression over and over. I love what Moses does. He goes to Zebulon. He says, this is your inheritance. It's this treasure of sand. And Zebulon's walking out of the blessing room, looking at the sand. And Moses, I can't prove he did this, but I think he did it. So this is just for your imagination and you try this and email Jeff if you don't like it. He loves that. I think he whispers in Zebulon's ear, a secret. I know, I know, I know that wasn't what your brother's got. I know that's not what the other tribes got. I know it doesn't, doesn't look like much, but I want to tell you a secret. There's treasure. Don't tell anybody. The tribes are not going to get this, but Zebulon, there's treasure in the sand. There's treasure in it. I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know that most people are hopeless because they believe what they believe been handed is worthless. And they look at life and they think, man, how could I have hope with this circumstance? How can I have hope in this kind of an environment? How can I have hope in this kind of a climate that we live in? But Moses says, don't lose hope 
in the worthless place. There's treasure hidden in the sand. And I want to give you three quick thoughts that I think will help you find treasure in the sand. Number one, choose to rise above what you've been handed. And you can rise above what you've been handed. You see, the inheritance that they were given was not valuable. So the lie that the other tribes bought into and what the Zebulonites had to be careful to avoid was the lie that they were not valuable. Their inheritance was not valuable. So everyone else said that the Zebulonites were not valuable just because they didn't have much didn't change their value. So the Zebulonites were mocked by other tribes. They were despised by others. The other tribes chose to look at surface things and say they're worth nothing. They have nothing but sand, but that worthless material. But the Zebulonites chose to interpret their inheritance, not as an insult, but as a gift. And they looked at the gift of sand. And they kept telling each other, Moses promised, he gave us the secret. He said, there's treasure in the sand. Moses told us there's treasure in the sand. So pastors had to encourage their congregations. Hey, I know it doesn't look like much. I don't see it either. I know we're trying to find it. I know we've been looking for it for years and decades, and we've been fighting and praying and sacrificing for it. But hey, I just need to tell you, Moses said, he said, there's treasure in the sand. He said it. Congregations would have to encourage their pastors. Uh, wives would have to encourage their husbands. Husbands would have to encourage their wives. Sons would have to encourage their dads. Dads would have to encourage their sons. Just saying, hey, hey, I know it doesn't look like much. I know we're going through a lot, but somewhere there's treasure in the sand. That is the promise that God has given us. They had to choose to believe where others doubted. Second Peter three and verse nine, God is not slack in keeping his promise as some consider slackness, but instead he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know what that Bible says? That Bible verse says real clear. Anything God's not done for you is for your protection. You're like, well, he did it for them. Why not me? If God has not given it to you, it's for your good. But we don't like that, do we? We don't want to believe that. But the Bible says that God's not slack concerning keeping. You're like, but I'm dwelling on the edge of the land of promise. I'm hearing about all these great things that God can do. And I'm watching everybody else walk in it, but I'm not there. God's not slack as some consider slackness. He's patient. He's watching you. He's working on you. He's developing something in you. So when you do discover the treasure in the sand, you'll have the character. You'll have the integrity. You'll have the mindset that it takes to carry it out. So there's treasure in the sand. There's treasure in the divorce. There's treasure in the trauma. There's treasure in the difficulty that you're facing. There's treasure even in your own failure. When I look around at my life and I think, man, some of the moments I look back at and I thought that moment should disqualify me. That moment should make me never be able to even stand in the presence of God. But yet somehow, some way I look back and there's treasure in even the worst failures. Somewhere, you have to find it, you have to look for it, you have to work for it, you have to dig for it, but there is treasure hidden in the sand. And so Zebulon kept going back to that promise. Kept going back, there's promise, there's treasure hidden somewhere in the sand. 
Over and over, they started to look. They started to pray. The Bible actually says this concerning a prophecy or a promise, if we'll get it in our heart. Paul told Timothy, you can wage war with that prophecy. In other words, you can fight because you have a word from God. All they had was that this, there's treasure in the sand, but they kept fighting and they kept working and they kept believing and they chose to rise above what they had been given. Number two, treasure is hidden Notice the word because of its value. It's hidden. It's not obvious. It's not out in the open. It's not just there for anybody to see. This is not a surface thing that God does. This is not a cosmetic thing. Moses said the treasure is hidden in the field or hidden in the sand. So this is what the the Zebulonites discovered. I don't know how long it took them to discover this, but they discovered there was unique, rare, hidden value in their sands. In a time where glass was very valuable in ancient times, especially in this area along the river Belus, there is a famous glossy sand. This famous glossy sand you cannot find anywhere else in the world. For many years, this area was known as the sole manufacturer for glass in the ancient world. So the sand, the actual sand created untold wealth for the Zebulonites. Also inside of that area is a shellfish called the Murex shellfish, and it's only found in this particular sand. You find it nowhere else in the world, and they would take a purple dye, and they would extract it from this shellfish, and it was a highly prized dye that was used in royal garments and robes in the ancient world, and also brought untold wealth and value into this area of the world. What I'm simply trying to get you to see is when Moses said there's treasure in the sand, he wasn't saying it's around it, not close to it, somewhere buried within it. You got to go find the pirate ship and maybe in some cave somewhere, Goonies, somebody follow me, some cave somewhere, you go find it. No, no, no. It was actually intrinsically wired within the sand itself. There's treasure in the sand. Matthew chapter 13, 44 says the kingdom of God is like this, that a man finds a treasure in the field and he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. He found the treasure, but he had to buy the field. A lot of people want the treasure, but they don't want the field. But the only way you get the treasure is you have to pay the price for the field. I have to. I have to dig into the sand. I have to dig into what other people says is worthless and of no value. I have to look at that and say, well, this is what I've been given. Somehow, some way, I've got to find a way to extract value from this. Second Corinthians four and verse seven says, we have this treasure in earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The point is simply this. God took dirt. He breathed in it. He put that treasure in that dirt. He put his breath. He put his spirit. He put his treasure in you. And God places more value in that treasure that he put in you than what you've been handed circumstantially in life. And that's where you and I have to realize we've got to quit looking at our circumstance and we've got to say whatever that looks like somehow in that situation, God promises there is treasure in the sand. There's treasure hidden in the worst failure. 
There's treasure hidden in the greatest disappointment. There's treasure hidden in your greatest mistake. Anything the devil uses to devalue you over and over and over, you have to be reminded, no, God put this treasure in me, which is his earthen vessel. He put the treasure of his spirit, the treasure of his breath, the treasure of his word in my life. And I believe that what others call worthless, God sees treasure. So number three, you find your treasure in what others call worthless. You find your treasure in what others call worthless. The city of Nazareth is located in the area that Zebulon was given as an inheritance. Nazareth is located by the Sea of Galilee, which is the area that the Zebulites was given. Well, you and I would know Jesus is from Nazareth. Jesus is from the land of the Zebulonites. And we would also know that the imagery of how worthless this area was considered in Israel never went away. In John chapter one, when Nathaniel is hearing about Jesus, hearing about the Messiah, he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? It's because it was in the culture of that day that no one ever believed there could be anything that would ever be valuable that could come from this region of that nation. So this is the code for all the tribes. I want you to think about it. Of all the despised tribes that there were, of all the areas that God could bring the Messiah from, of all the areas in Israel God could raise up his son, he chose to take the greatest treasure the world has ever known. And he chose to hide him in Nazareth. In this place that was considered to be of no value. We would know in John 8 that the woman is caught in adultery and they take her and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. What do they say? That the law of Moses says she's to be stoned. The law in their Their message was, this woman is of so little value, she shouldn't even be breathing anymore. That's what they were saying. And Jesus kneels down and he starts to write in the sand. Now, some scholars would say that what was happening was not an indictment against the woman, but was actually an indictment against Jesus. Because if you go back to the Christmas story that we're about to go into, When Mary was found pregnant, Joseph, of course, discovered it, and he was going to put her away in a divorce because he knew that the child was not his, so there's only one way a woman gets pregnant, and that's the result of her having intimate relations with with the opposite sex, right? So Joseph knew that wasn't him, so he's going to divorce her. So it was public knowledge in that time that Jesus was considered an illegitimate child, and I don't have time to go into how I would be able to show you that, but the truth is... In that time, Jesus was viewed as an illegitimate child. So when they threw this woman at the feet of Jesus, they weren't just saying she's of no value. They're saying what this woman was caught doing was the exact thing your mom was caught doing when she conceived you. So she's of no value. No, yeah, by the way, your mom's of no value because, hey, what I'm really trying to say, you're of no value. Because if we got to believe that she doesn't deserve to breathe and you got to execute that judgment on this woman, you're kind of basically saying you don't deserve to to breathe too. 
And Jesus kneels down and he writes in the sand. He writes in the dirt. Could it be, because we've heard for years, all these people talk about what did he write? What did he write? What did he write? Could it be that the message was not in what he wrote, but in where he wrote it? That he does this? Uh, Maybe he grabs a scoop of it. And he's saying, for hundreds of years, my people have heard. Your people say that we're of no value, that we're worthless, that we're nothing and we're nobodies because of the inheritance that we've been given our whole lives. We've been told that. But we found treasure in this thing. Now, now think about it. He's saying not only can this woman go live free, not only can this woman find value, even in what others would say, there's no great value in her history. There's no great value in her reputation. There's no great value in where she came, came from. Jesus also adds to it. Hey, yeah, by the way, before we go much further here, can we bring up some of your dirt too? You want to talk about your sin? We want to talk about your sand because you've got some too. And if we want to spend some time talking about who's of no value because of this thing or that thing or this issue or that problem, then we spend our whole. But instead, let's just remind ourselves that all of us have been given sand in one area or another. And the truth is, God does not bring treasure out of treasure that anybody can bring treasure out of treasure. Only God can bring treasure out of the sand. Only God can bring treasure out of the worthless place. Only God can bring treasure out of the hopeless place. I'm closing. I thought it was interesting, too, that Jesus um, would go to pick his first four apostles. And he didn't go to the mountainous, prosperous regions in Israel. He went to Galilee. He went to the land of the Zebulonites. That's where he went. He found Peter. He found James. He found John. He found Andrew. These would be the people that were the closest to him. He didn't go find him in a seminary. He didn't go find the people that had been raised in church for, you know, 18 generations. Those people, God can use them too. But he went and he found his apostles in what others can consider a hopeless or a worthless place. I just thought about how many people find themselves in church and they limit what God can do with them because of where they come from. When they don't realize that you're the very person he's looking for. You're the worse it is. The, the more you look at it, you're like, but not me, but not this. Don't even give me hope because I know me. I know my life. I know my mistakes. I know where I came from. No, no, no. I'm talking about you. That you are actually the person that he's the most drawn to, but you just have to hear the secret. There's treasure in the sand, that thing that you say, there's nothing valuable about it. There's nothing valuable about what I went through. There's nothing valuable about what they did to me. There's nothing valuable about what happened. No, I'm saying there's treasure in it. I don't know how you're going to find it. I don't know when you're going to find it, but it is there. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Before I pray real quick, maybe you're here and you'd say, Marcus, Jesus Christ is not the Lord of my life.
you've not given your life to Jesus, you, you've not surrendered to him, you've never said yes to God, you've never put your trust in Christ, your confidence in Christ, you don't consider yourself a, a, a Christian today, uh, maybe you know about the things of God, but you've never really surrendered your life. You've never fully said yes to God. God, I'll give you my life. I give you everything. I surrender and submit to you. Maybe you've occasionally looked at church and attended church, but it's never been something that's real to you. And today you'd say, Marcus, would you pray for me? I need a new beginning. Today I need a new start. Today you need forgiveness. Today you need Restore, restoration. Today, you need God to give you that second chance or maybe that 10th chance or maybe that 100th chance. But you're here today and you say, Marcus, I need to get right with God today. And you would like me to pray for you. I'm gonna count to three. And when I hit three, I'm just gonna invite you to lift your hand. When you lift your hand, you're saying, Pastor, would you pray for me today? I need to get right with God. You're saying, I need to invite Jesus into my life and my heart. You say, why do I lift my hand? Because that's the moment you say yes. And that yes is very important to you. It's important to God. It makes an announcement that today is the first day of the rest of my life. I'm not going to go back to the life that I was living. I, I'm believing for a brand new life. On the count of three, you say, would you pray for me today? I need to get right with God. Lift that hand as high as you can. One, two, three. Lift it as high as you can. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Let's all put our hand on our heart. Say this with me. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross, for paying the price for my sin. Forgive me cleanse me, wash me. Jesus, I do believe that you're God's only son and that he raised you from the dead. And I give you my life today in Jesus name. And I just want to pray for everybody real quick. Father, I thank you for these amazing people. I thank you for the privilege to sit in a room and talk about you with these amazing people. Lord, you said that every time we have a conversation about you, you write it down in a book. That's how much you love us just talking about you. So here we've been today just talking about your goodness, talking about your faithfulness, singing about the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that he paid. And all across this room, there are those who have been handed sand and they've been insulted by what they've been handed. And they've used what they've been handed as a reason to shrink back, as a reason to pull back, as a reason to come up with an excuse to not believe you for great things. But today, Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord was spoken and that there are those who've received the message that there is treasure in that sand. There is treasure in that mistake. There is treasure somewhere in that circumstance that they wish they would have never faced, but yet they've gone through it. They're up against it. And Father, I thank you that today you're speaking to them about the great treasure that is going to come from that unfortunate scenario. In Jesus' name, we all said a big amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a good hand clap together. Hey, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This concludes the teaching. If you'd like to support what God is doing here at City of Life, click on the Give button at www.col.tv or text a dollar amount to the number 855-997-6900. We hope you'll join us again.